singing hymn number 52 and number 52 in Christ alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm if you're able we'll stand to sing the whole of this hymn together after the introduction
ourselves to God in prayer. Our Father, we come before thee this evening and we give thee thanks that we can indeed sing of a truth that it is in Christ alone that we are here tonight. We do thank thee for the bond that unites us in him. We thank thee that he is the one who came into this world for us. We are moving towards the time of year where generally in the world at large we think of his coming as a babe at Bethlehem. And we do thank thee for that. We thank thee that God was indeed manifest in the flesh. And we just thank thee that we can come together this evening around thy word. And we just pray that as it is opened and read and taught from, that it will indeed be something that will encourage and challenge our hearts. We pray for our brother Sinclair who has come to be with us and we just pray that Lord help him as he ministers thy word to us tonight. <coughs> we do know that there are those who would have liked to have been here but for various reasons are not able to come and some are unwell and we just pray that they will be with them where they are and give them a blessing um, in their own soul tonight. And so we just look to thee for, for thy help and for thy blessing tonight and ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Just one or two announcements before our brother Sinclair comes and speaks to us. Um, I'm very pleased that Matt Sinclair has come here this evening uh, to minister the word of God to us. We thank him for coming uh, and just pray that God will help and encourage him this evening. He's coming back to be with us uh, tomorrow uh, for the meetings here in Holborn Gospel at 11.45 and the teaching of God's word at 6.30 and we are continuing uh, our teaching through the letter to the Romans. The next meeting in our series uh, is on the 12th of January 2019. <coughs> I have to believe that we're now talking about uh, 2019 in the will of God, but that's the next meeting in our series here, and we hope to have our brother Alan Gamble with us uh, on that occasion. And just a couple of other upcoming meetings to mention, I'm sure you're aware of them, but we'll just mention them anyway. Uh, next Saturday the 15th in Lovermuir. There is the uh, ministry meeting and Blair Martin is the speaker on that occasion. And then in Fountain Hall at Woodside on the 22nd of December, uh, Ian Grant is the speaker uh, there. So that's uh, all the announcements I need to make at this, at this time and I'll just hand over now to you. I'd like to read this evening from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we'll just read the whole chapter. Corinthians chapter 2. My brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, 
save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. <coughs> Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And we trust that God will bless that reading of his word to all our hearts. And there was a, a background problem at Corinth that the Apostle was addressing uh, in the first four chapters of this letter and it was a problem that was reported to him by the house of Chloe and uh, we'll learn about that in chapter 1 and in verse 11 Paul says it hath been declared unto me of you my brethren by them which are of the house of Chloe that there are contentions among you and so Paul was addressing contentions, strife, division among the Corinthian believers uh, one expression of that was given in verse 12 of chapter 1 where the apostle says every one of you saith I am of Paul I of Apollos I of Cephas and there were even those who said I of Christ I think perhaps they were the worst of all uh, in the sense that they were claiming Christ for themselves to the exclusion of all the rest and at the same time were dismissing all the servants of God and so there was division among them and there was party spirit and they were making much of men they were glorying in men and so Paul has to deal with that he mentions that again in chapter 3 and he tells them for ye are yet carnal for while one saith I am of Paul and another I am of Apollos are ye not carnal and so they were, they were making party spirit out of men and therefore causing division and strife in the assembly and Paul will have to address that and we do have to ever be on our guard to ensure that we do not align ourselves behind men. That will only cause strife and division in the assembly and among the assemblies. When a man becomes uh, more important and more authoritative than the word of God, then there is something very wrong. 
We have to be very careful that we are not given to party spirit and to following men and aligning ourselves behind men even though we may find them very appealing and they may be the type of personality that draws us to them we have to be very careful that we are not like the Corinthians and I mean we can't really blame Paul or uh, Cephas, Peter or Apollos it was the believers in the assembly to blame they made too much of men and so there was a problem Uh, there was division in the assembly and Paul therefore has to address that difficulty in these first four chapters and in these four chapters Paul will make much emphasis on the folly and of the thinking and of assessments that are characterised by the wisdom of this world that was the root problem and so they were marked by the wisdom of the world and they followed men because it suited their thinking and so they were aligning themselves behind men according to their personal opinions and theories and wisdom and the result was that there was division and strife among the believers in Corinth and so throughout these four chapters uh, Paul will show the folly of the wisdom of this world and of the wisdom of man and so in chapter 1 he will say for example in verse 18 hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world verse 9 verse 21 that's verse 20 I should say verse 21 of chapter 1 for after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God then again in chapter 3 verse 19 for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God and so on Paul is emphasising That the wisdom of this world is not a suitable basis for judging spiritual things and teaching spiritual things and making spiritual assessments. And so Paul deals very much with that aspect of things. Now in order to teach that the wisdom of this world is not suitable in the assembly, he will do so by bringing out several truths, one of which is the cross of Christ. And so he will mention at least two major aspects related to the cross of Christ. And throughout these first four chapters he mentions the cross of Christ regularly. For example in the verses that we have read this evening. Verse 2, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 8, they crucified the Lord of glory. And so what he is telling them is this. That the cross was man's verdict upon Christ. And the cross represents the wisdom of this world. The cross represents the wisdom of man. And if that is the verdict of the wisdom of man, then it is wholly inappropriate to follow the wisdom of man in a spiritual sphere. Because the wisdom of man is seen at its apex at the cross when they crucified the Lord of glory. And how inappropriate, therefore, to assess things, to judge things, to base things, to teach things in the assembly and spiritual things based on the wisdom of this world. It crucified the Lord of glory. But there's a second aspect to the cross that Paul will use as an antidote to the problem in the Corinthian assembly. And we find that in verse 2 of our chapter where Paul determined not to know anything among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he's reminding them of that. That the message that he preached was in fact a message which centred on Christ crucified. Why is he emphasising that? He does it in chapter 1 as well. 
Why does he do that? Well, Christ and him crucified is presented to the Corinthians as an example, a demonstration of the humility of Christ. And so uh, Darby comments very, very helpfully on this matter in verse 2 of chapter 2. And he said this, Take notice here that Paul does not say he would know nothing but the cross. He would know nothing but Christ. And Christ in the most humble form. That is Christ crucified. Why? And he goes on to say, in order to overturn the pride of man. And so essentially, the root problem in Corinth was the pride of man. And the elevation of the wisdom of man. The wisdom of this world. And so in these first four chapters, uh, Paul is really uh, teaching the necessity to understand how inappropriate that is in the assembly. And the cross will teach that. The cross brings to an end the wisdom of man, the intellect of man, the pride of man. The cross has brought all that to an end. And therefore how inappropriate in an assembly of God's people that there should be the wisdom of man and the pride of man. The cross has brought all that to an end. And the greatest example of the very opposite of that is Christ. In the most humble form, Christ crucified. And so, in these four chapters, Paul will appeal, for example, uh, in chapter 1, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Chapter 1, verse 31, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Then again, over in chapter 3, and verse 21, therefore let no man glory in men. That's what they were doing. By the wisdom of man, they were glorying in men and dividing the assembly and dividing it into parties into divisions and Paul deals with that matter first to this assembly which has many other problems that also need to be addressed but this is the one that he brings to their attention first of all now in this chapter that we have read that theme is very much in the background and Paul will deal with the, the worthlessness, the emptiness, the hopelessness of the wisdom of man in this chapter. And he will do so by contrasting it in verses 1 to 5 with the demonstration of the power of God. And in verses 6 to 16 with the revelation of the wisdom of God. And he will show that the demonstration of the power of God stands in contrast to the wisdom of this world. And the revelation of the wisdom of God is utterly distinct from the wisdom of this world. So let's think of these verses, and they are very interesting. And we're just going to go down them, uh, verse by verse, more or less, and think about what Paul is teaching. So first of all, verses 1 to 5, demonstration of the power of God, standing in contrast to the wisdom of man. Paul reminds the Corinthians of his coming to them. First thing he says in verse 1, When I came to you, I came not, verse 1. Then again, verse 2, uh, he says that I determined not to know anything among you. And verse 3, I was with you. So Paul's reminding them of the time when he was with them, when he visited them, when he came with the gospel, with the message of Christ and him crucified. And he's going to remind them of that which was absent when he came. And so he says in verse 1, When I came it was not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. 
verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 4, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Paul says, when I was with you, there was that which was absent. First of all, he was not there, verse 1, with excellency of speech or of wisdom. That word excellency you'll find in 1 Timothy chapter 2. When the apostle is speaking of all that are in authority. It's the same word. And there it has the idea of those who are in eminent places. It's not exactly how we're meant to understand it here. But it does convey the idea of prominence and superiority of oratory. Paul says, I came not with that kind of excellency of speech. It didn't come with prominence given to oratory. Nor, he says, of wisdom. That is, his own wisdom, his own intellectual reasonings, the outworking of his own mind, which was, by the way, one of the most brilliant minds the world has ever known. Paul says, I didn't bring that when I came to Corinth. He says, no, I wasn't there with excellency of speech or of wisdom. And he said, it was not in that manner that I came declaring unto you the testimony of God. Paul in his proclamation of the gospel of Christ crucified placed no emphasis upon eloquence or wisdom. What he did place emphasis on was the testimony of God. That is to say, the testimony that originates with God. The testimony of God concerning his son crucified as the object of faith. Paul says, what I placed emphasis on was not in my oratory or on my wisdom, but on the substance of the gospel that God had given me to preach. That is to say, Christ and him crucified. That's what I came with, Paul said. And so he says, first of all, I came not with excellency of speech or of my own wisdom, but rather with the testimony of God. But then in verse 2 he says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he's continuing his argument here and he's saying that he resolved not to use clever argument or to court popularity by concocting an attractive method or message. Paul would not supplant or supplement the simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, that's all I came with. It was foolishness to the perishing. He tells us that in chapter 1. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Paul says, though it was foolishness to the perishing, he would not make it more rational and logical to suit their minds. Though it was unknown to the princes of this world, which we're going to find out in a few minutes, Paul says, I would not seek to rebrand this message to be more acceptable to the chief men of authority and intellect in the world. <coughs> what he says is very simple. He says, I was bound up wholly to the message of Christ crucified. And so Paul says he was not there with anything other than the message of Christ crucified. Then he says in verse 4, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words 
of man's wisdom he's fairly emphasising the point we couldn't excuse him of not making it very clear what he's trying to say and so he says in verse 4 my speech and my preaching uh, that word speech is actually translated preaching in chapter 1 verse 18 the preaching of the cross and it has to do with an emphasis on the means of communicating the preaching of the cross the method of communicating the message he was preaching it it's the word of the cross Uh, and it's the idea of the, the manner of setting forth the gospel that's behind the word speech but then he uses the word preaching which is a different word Uh, And that is in fact the same word as chapter 1 verse 21, not the same as chapter 1 verse 18, where it's also translated preaching. And there it's the idea of the content and the substance of the message. So in these two words, speech and preaching, Paul is conveying both the method of communicating and the message he is communicating. W.E. Vine has put it this way, the two might be rendered my preaching and my message. So says Paul, my preaching, my message was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. (coughs) That word enticing has the idea of persuasive words. And so he would not use persuasive words arising out of a seemingly well-reasoned argument that would appeal to the rational mind of the intellectuals of the day. Paul says I wasn't willing to do that. I had no authority to do that. He was not willing to use rhetoric and clever language to induce the hearers to respond. And that would mean they would become subject to the next wave of clever and attractive reasoning. We're going to come on to that in a moment or two. So says Paul, that's not how I came among you with the gospel. It wasn't based on the wisdom of man. Couldn't have been further away from Paul's thinking. And he was a man with a tremendous intellect. And we see that in the scriptures. But he says, I wasn't there parading my learning, my wisdom, my intellect, my reasoning. That was absent. But he does remind them of what was present when he was among them. And so he will say to them in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling what a contrast in weakness perhaps Paul is meaning physical weakness in 2 Corinthians 10 he will say that their opinion of him was who in presence am base among you and there were some who were in fact saying his bodily presence is weak Uh, so perhaps it was physical weakness that marked Paul when he was among the Corinthians or is it a healthy distrust in self that led to dependence upon God and not dependence on himself? Well, says Paul, I was there in weakness. I was there in fear. I was there in trembling. Fear perhaps being uh, the inward aspect of things, trembling the outward expression of that. Paul says, I was not there self-confidently, arrogantly. Paul says, I was there in fear and in trembling. Now, it may have been actually physical fear as a result of opposition. That is very evident in Acts 18 when you read the the background to Paul visiting Corinth. And in verses 9 and 10, the Lord said to Paul, Be not afraid, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. They certainly went out of their way to hurt him. 
Paul says, don't be afraid. Uh, the Lord says to him, don't be afraid. Uh, you'll not be hurt, Paul. But nonetheless, he was afraid. Uh, be not afraid, the Lord says. So, was it fear as a result of the opposition? Uh, whatever it is, whatever the cause of the weakness, the nature of the weakness, whatever caused the fear and the trembling, what is coming across here very clearly is that Paul was not among them self-dependent, self-projecting, self-confident, promoting himself and his wisdom. Paul says he was rather among them conscious of weakness and frailty and fear. He was not like the Corinthians were familiar with, the great orators and philosophers and great minds of the day. He was not like one of them, supremely self-obsessed and confident. And the Corinthians were very impressed with that. Paul says, that's not how I was among you. It could have been. He could have gone and said, I'm a man of great learning. Sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Didn't do any of that. He says, I went with the message of Christ and him crucified. But look at verse 4. Where there was that absence of self and wisdom. And where there was that presence of weakness and fear and much trembling. And a very definite sense of self-dependence upon God. What was the result? Well there was the power of God. My speech and my preaching was not, says Paul, with enticing words of man's wisdom. But what was present was this demonstration of the spirit and the power. That was very much evident in the assembly at Corinth. That word demonstration is not the idea of exhibiting. But it's the idea of proof. Paul says, when I was among you in this manner, there was proof of the power of God in the power of the Spirit of God and so Paul's preaching and message of Christ crucified though devoid of all human wisdom and dependence upon rational and oratorial rhetoric Paul's preaching was evidently proof of the outworking of the power of the Holy Spirit I like how Kelly put it his word and his preaching was not after the rhetoric of the schools but such as gave scope to the Spirit of God. We're not surprised about that. Because it was, after all, the testimony of God that Paul presented. And when it is that which God has authorised, and that which is of God that Paul is preaching and presenting, then it's no surprise that there is the, the power of the Spirit of God evident manifestly among them, in contrast to the wisdom of man. But why was this so important? Well, verse 5 tells us why it's so important. Absolutely vital that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Had Paul come to Corinth displaying his abilities, his intellect, his learning, his wisdom? Had he come with the silver tongue of a supremely confident wordsmith, dazzling with his rhetoric? Had Paul sought to win them with eloquent argument and persuasive sentiment, their faith would not have stood the test of time. W.E. Vine said something very interesting. He said, that which depends on clever argument is at the mercy of a cleverer argument. And when the next wave of new thinking comes along, 
The last wave of thinking is suppressed, it's finished, it's gone, hasn't stood the test of time. Paul says, I didn't come to you with that kind of persuasiveness, that kind of reasoning, how frail, how fragile that must be. Paul says, I came centering my message on Christ and him crucified as the testimony of God. And the result was, their faith will stand, because it stands not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We have a duty, a responsibility, in the presentation of the gospel of God, that we present it in such a way, that the faith of man responding to the message, is that which is in the power of God. And will therefore stand the test of time and eternity. If this was only for time it wouldn't matter. But it's for eternity. And if it's in the wisdom of men that we present a message. It will not stand. There may appear to be some reality to it. But if it's based on the wisdom of men. And clever argument and rhetoric and reasoning. It will not stand and men will perish if they are standing on that false foundation. We have a responsibility that we preach that which is the testimony of God. Christ and him crucified central to that testimony. That the power of God might have scope to work. The spirit of God operating and bringing about reality of faith. That will stand not only for time, but for eternity. And so I think we can say one or two things in connection with that. Let us be content with the gospel of the Bible. And not seek to make the method or the message more appealing. Paul utterly refused to do so. And may we do so. May we also recognise that what is needed above all else, above all else, is not new styles, not new confident front men who appeal to the world, but Holy Spirit power in our preaching is what we need above all else. Anything else is of no avail. I do want to make just one word of qualification. In, in respect of that I'm not saying that preaching should be dull or boring or dry or passionless start from it but it must above all else centre upon the message of Christ and him crucified and it must place emphasis on the content and the doctrine of the gospel rather than emphasis on style rather than emphasis on new methods let us be satisfied with the message that God has given us to preach and the method he has given us to use by and large to make it known I know that there are ways of personally but I'm not speaking about discounting any of that but let us be confident about the message of the gospel and not think that because perhaps there's not as many saved as we'd like to see saved that we need to change What we need is the power of God, not to change our method and message. When we come to verses 6 to 16, Paul has a second uh, contrast with the wisdom of the world. 
The wisdom of the world stands in contrast to the demonstration of the power of God in the gospel. When we come to verses 6 to 16, there is the revelation of the wisdom of God which stands in contrast to the wisdom of the world. Now the revelation is very obvious because Paul says in verse 6 we speak and then again verse 7 we speak verse 10 it's that which is revealed verse 13 which things also we speak Paul is making known uh, the revelation of the wisdom of God now in verses 6 to 9 it is concealed from the princes of this age and in verses 10 to 16 it is revealed by the spirit of God it's the only way it will be made known verses 6 to 9 it's concealed from the princes of this age. Uh, notice in verse uh, 6 there is a change from I, verses 1 to 5, to we. Paul is now speaking perhaps of himself and the apostles in general to whom the wisdom of God was revealed initially by divine revelation, direct revelation, and then revealed to us through his word. So perhaps he is identifying himself with the apostles, but we can apply this to ourselves as well as those to whom that revelation has also been made known. And so Paul begins by saying, uh, I'm not saying there's no wisdom in the gospel. He's emphasised that uh, it's not the wisdom of man, but there's still wisdom in the gospel. Man might not see it, but it's still wisdom. And so he says, but we speak wisdom. And we do so among them that are perfect, that is spiritually mature. Uh, now Paul is perhaps making a point here about the Corinthians. They were perhaps immature. And that is evident later on in the book as well. And in chapter 11 particularly. There was a great deal of spiritual immaturity. Paul is saying really to enter into the full enjoyment of the revelation of God you need to be spiritually mature. Go in for maturity. And so Paul says, uh, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, but, he says, not the wisdom of this world. It's not the ideas, the philosophies, the thinking, the values, the maxims of this age. That's not the wisdom that we are speaking. Not the wisdom of this world. Nor, he says, verse 6, of the princes of this world. Uh, if Satan is the prince of the power of the air then the princes of this age are the rulers of this age who take their character from Satan. And so there are rulers of this age, princes of this age, eh, perhaps the leaders of our world and the great supposed thinkers of our world who are influencing the thinking of the world. All these princes of this age, eh, whether they be political or social or whatever it may be, Paul says that's not the wisdom that I am speaking of because their wisdom, he says in verse 6, comes to naught. It comes to nothing. It will be put out of commission. Ultimately the human wisdom of all that is connected with this world will come to absolutely nothing. And we're glad about that, are we not? Because we are more exposed today to, to some apparent enlightened thinking that is so contrary to the word of God. And the world is so proud in its enlightenment and advanced thinking and developments. No, no, says Paul. It's coming to nothing. And so whether we think of the atheistic ideology of Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking or even the right-wing ideology of Jordan Peterson, uh, he does have some reasonable ideology, morally, 
But he doesn't know if the resurrection is a fact or not. So we can't base what we believe on the thinking of even right-wing ideologists. Let's be clear about that. So whether it's left-wing, liberal, atheistic ideologists or right-wing ideologists, all the thinking, the wisdom of man comes to nothing. And whether we think of the great potentates, the demagogues, the, or the democratically elected leaders of our world, all their ideas, their thinking comes to nothing. Paul says, that's not the wisdom that I'm speaking about. But he says, verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God. That makes all the difference. That's the only source of wisdom. That which is of God. There is no other wisdom. He's already emphasized that he preaches the testimony of God. He's saying we are preaching, we are presenting, we are revealing through the the Spirit of God directly the wisdom of God. And he says, in a mystery. That doesn't mean that you can't comprehend it. It doesn't mean that it's difficult to understand. He explains what he means in the very next phrase where he says, even the hidden wisdom. So the point about a mystery in the New Testament is that truth that was hidden is now revealed. And so Paul is saying, there is now revealed truth. That's a New Testament mystery, revealed truth. That was hidden, it's now revealed. And he says something amazing here. Please grasp this, which God ordained before the world. Here's an amazing fact. Nothing has taken God by surprise. Not one thing. The word ordained is the idea of predetermined. To mark out beforehand. Before the world is before the ages. And so in eternity. God determined. That there would be revealed truth. That would unveil his wisdom. And the amazing fact is. That that was actually Christ and him crucified. That was the wisdom of God that was conceived in eternity and that plan and purpose of God in relation to Christ crucified preceded creation preceded sin preceded any one of us here God ordained it before the ages but that's not all he says here unto our glory And so God has secured for you and I by his purpose in eternity. That marks out God is sovereign. God has secured in eternity our glory. I take it here this is our final glory. That is to say when we are finally, eternally and fully conformed to Christ. Paul says that day is coming for you. But remember this, it was determined in eternity. And so God purposed, with you in mind, with me in mind, praise God, that we would be glorious in conformity to Christ. And God has determined that. Is that perhaps one of the things that Paul is speaking about in verse 9? The things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Our glory. Now, there's a lovely outline of the believer in relation to glory uh, as seen in relation to the aspects of God and the attributes of God I don't have time to develop that let me just give you the brief outline of them here we have glory and the wisdom of God 
as far as a believer is concerned. In Romans 8 is glory and the purpose of God. In Romans 9 is glory and the mercy of God. In 2 Thessalonians 2 is glory and the love of God. And 1 Peter 5 is glory and the grace of God. God in all his attributes works towards the glory of the believer. And here it is, glory secured on the ground of the revealed wisdom of God. Namely, the message of Christ crucified. This is verse 8. Which none of the princes of this world knew. The most educated men in the world had not a clue that Christ crucified was the wisdom of the eternal almighty God conceived in eternity. They hadn't a clue. That's why they crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were utterly ignorant as to his identity. They did not recognize him to be the eternal God. They rejected him. They would not have him as God. That was why the Jews crucified him. And here it tells us that the wisdom of man has this verdict, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. In verse 9, Paul continues the theme of the concealment of the wisdom of God to the princes of this age and to, in fact, all who are in unbelief. When he says, as it is written, he has in mind Isaiah 64 and verse 4, and he quotes it and he says, I have not seen nor ear heard, and so there is conveyed here matters related to the senses. And then he says, neither have entered into the heart of man, that is the intellect and the understanding of man. So the senses of man, the intellect of man, are all beyond knowing the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Whether we see that as the future glory that he is securing for us, or our present and eternal blessings, and we're happy either way, they are beyond the understanding of the men and women of this world who are in unbelief, as well as the greatest intellects on our planet. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, Your life is hid with Christ in God. They cannot see it. They do not understand it. We ought not to expect them to do so. If we have time, we'll understand a bit more about that towards the end of the chapter. But Paul says, What is concealed from the princes of this age, verse 10 to 16, is revealed to us. I don't really think we appreciate the greatness of the revelation of divine truth that we have been brought into. Paul says, God hath revealed them unto us. I don't read verse 9 wrong. Some do. I think they say uh, that such is the, the wonder and the greatness and the glory of what God has prepared for them that love him. I judge that to be all believers. Uh, we just cannot understand it. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love him. We can't grasp it. We can't understand. That's exactly the opposite from what Paul's saying. Paul said it's concealed from the men and women of this world, the intellectuals of this world, but God hath, verse 10, revealed them unto us by his Spirit. And so Paul is telling us we have that revelation that is concealed from the world. And here is something that I'm sure you share with me in delighting in. 
The simplest, most uneducated, even illiterate believer, unheralded, unknown, perhaps unrecognised completely in the world, has an appreciation of eternal and divine things that the greatest unbelieving intellect in the world has. The greatest mind on earth has less of an understanding of eternal and divine matters than the simplest illiterate believer. Paul says, God has revealed them unto us. In verses 10 and 11 there's an explanation of Holy Spirit revelation. In verse 12 there's an application of that. In verse 13 there's a communication of it. And in verses 14 to 16 there's a reception or not of Holy Spirit revelation. So let's just deal first of all verses 10 and 11 with an explanation of Holy Spirit revelation. Why is this wisdom of God revealed by the Spirit of God? Paul will answer that in verses 10 and 11 because he says, For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now it's not the idea of searching here to discover because the Spirit of God knows all things. But it's the idea of penetrating to reveal. Now there's a parallel that you will understand and I will understand uh, where it is that God searches our hearts. Not to discover what's in our hearts but to reveal it to us. Same idea. The Holy Spirit is he who penetrates into all things, into the counsels of God. Not to discover but to reveal. And it's the deep things of God. Uh, Does that mean that it's the wisdom of God as revealed here? Does it mean every attribute of God? I think you can take it whatever way you want. This is true that the Spirit of God searches the deep things of God. Uh, Verse 11 explains that a little further by comparison with man. Paul says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? And what he's saying there is, that what is in the mind of a man can only be known by the man himself. For example, I'm standing up here, hoping that you're all enjoying this, but I can't tell that. You may all be the very opposite. Some of you might be hoping that half faith comes quicker than others. Some of you might be seriously hoping that I'm not going to go a minute beyond half faith. I don't know what you're thinking. That's what Paul's saying in verse 11. Uh, what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of a man which is in him even so says Paul the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God and so what he's telling us is this the ability to search to penetrate to perceive and to reveal the things of God belongs to the spirit of God and that's why it is he who must reveal the wisdom of God to us because they are the things of God And of course, there is here, therefore, conveyed a very fundamental and important truth that the Spirit of God is God. But then in verse 12, we're asking the question now, not why does the Spirit of God reveal these things, because he is God, is the answer. But in verse 12, we're asking the question, why is he revealing them to us? How can we receive them? Well, he says, we can receive them, uh, not because we have the spirit of the world. We couldn't possibly receive the things of God with that spirit. But he says, we are receiving these things because, rather, the spirit which is of God, 
that we might know of these things, the things that are of God, has been freely given to us of God. And so how can we know the things of the Spirit of God, and therefore the things of God, the deep things of God? Well, we can only know them because we have the Spirit of God. So here's another fundamental, essential truth, and I know that you all believe it, I hope you do anyway. That every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God. It's the only way we'll ever know the things of God. That's what Paul is teaching in this whole chapter. He's going to come on to emphasize that later. And so here's a fundamental truth that Paul will teach in verse 19 of chapter 6 of this book. What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God. And so upon believing, every single believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And in Romans chapter 8, well, Paul will say that anyone who has not the Spirit of Christ, who is of course God, is none of his. And so, by inference, every believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And verse 12 is telling us, how can we possibly know these things? We can only know the things of God, the revealed wisdom of God, because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now that means something uh, quite practical to us all. I'm going to quote Gablin here. And if you don't like it, you can shoot him and not me. So this is what he says. The excuse some Christians make of their inability to grasp certain truths when they say it is too deep for me this is what he says, dishonours the indwelling spirit. For our poor little minds all is too deep, but not for the spirit of God. So, there you go. <laughs> if you don't like it, blame Gabriel. What we're learning here is that with the spirit of God indwelling us, we can know the deep things of God. We can understand the things of God. The way is opened up for us to understand his present uh, purpose for us, his eternal purpose for us. All that has taken place in eternity is opened up for us because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's what verse 12 is teaching. So don't wallow Wade, in the shallows of divine truth. You don't need to. If you believe Gabriel, you really ought not to. It is available for us. To understand the deep things of God. I'm sometimes a wee bit surprised uh, when I'm told that younger people aren't really capable of grasping some aspects of divine truth. Listen, the younger people are learning things I've never understood. And complex theories that are beyond the most of us here. You can understand it. Don't have the mindset that it's beyond you. It's not. The divine truth, in fact, is not nearly so complicated as much that you're taught at school, even sometimes in primary school, certainly secondary school, and most definitely university. You can understand divine truth and we have the Spirit of God within to help us. Paul says that. The Word of God says that in verse 12, and Gabriel agrees. Verse 13 was the communication of Holy Spirit revelation. So, if it's outside of man's wisdom and dependent on God's spirit, so too is the communication of this revealed truth. So Paul says, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Now how is that manifest? He says at the end of the verse, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now there's an interesting statement. 
Here is how spiritual uh, wisdom, the wisdom of God, the deep things of God, is revealed. It's by comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so what does he mean? Well, he's speaking about the expounding of spiritual things by spiritual words. W.E. Vine puts it very well. I'll quote two things that he said. You don't catch the first, you might catch the second. He said, this is matching or combining spiritual things with spiritual words. He puts it another way. Interpretation of spiritual truths needs spiritual language. So what Paul is saying here is, in the revelation of divine truth, use spiritual language. Let me put it very plain, the language of the Bible. The truth of the Bible, with the dignity of the Bible. We do not present the wisdom of God to the world or among ourselves in the language of the gutter. We are not exhorted to downgrade to the level of man. We are exhorted to use spiritual means, spiritual language, spiritual words to communicate spiritual truth. That is what Paul is saying when he says comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so how careful we need to be in speaking about these things. This is after all the gospel of the glory of God. Then in verses 14 to 16 the reception of Holy Spirit revelation. In verse 14 Paul deals with the natural man. I'll be very very brief. I won't go beyond half eight by much. In verse 14 he speaks about the natural man. That is the soulish man or unregenerate man. Depending on his own faculties. And the things of the spirit of God cannot be received by him. In fact they are foolishness unto him. And that's what chapter 1 proves. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. He cannot know these things. He cannot understand them. He can't discern, judge, distinguish to investigate these matters. Can't do it. He's devoid of the spiritual faculties to do so. But in verse 15, Paul says, he that is spiritual. Now that's not the the Christian who's progressed and is now very spiritually mature. This is all believers indwelt by the Spirit of God. Eh, all who have a divine spring of discerning, to quote Kelly. By the way, Kelly, if you're willing to work at him, is very, very helpful in uh, most passages. Uh, here's a believer with a divine spring of discerning. And by virtue of the indwelling Spirit of God, uh, he can discern all things. Yet, says Paul, he himself is discerned of no man. That is to say, uh, believers are outside of the discernment of Richard Dawkins. And well, I was going to say... Uh, Christopher Hitchens, he's gone, and so is Stephen Hawking, he's gone as well. But these kind of men, uh, the Christian is outside of their discernment. So they're going to mock us, they're going to find us difficult to understand. We can't expect them to, to think that we've got the answers. As far as they're concerned, we don't, uh, because they cannot discern these things. And so says Paul in conclusion, verse 16, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? What is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying certainly not natural man. He's unable to discern spiritual things. He's no ability or wisdom to know the mind of the Lord. Can't do it. And so Paul says, can he instruct God? Absolutely not. But he says, here's a remarkable statement. We have 
the mind of Christ. This is not the mind of Christ in the sense of Philippians 2, where we have to be marked by the humility that marks Christ. Here it's the idea of the intelligence, the thoughts, the wisdom, the knowledge that belongs to God alone and to Christ. We have now, through the Spirit of God, and this truth revealed to us, the ability to know that which belongs to God and is outside the ability of man to grasp though the most amazing intellect on the earth we have the mind of Christ it's an amazing fact and therefore we have revealed truth and an understanding of divine truth that we ought to value appreciate live and love and so the apostle in this passage is teaching that the the power of God and the wisdom of God stands in contrast to the wisdom of man Uh, Kelly summarizes the chapter very nicely he said to naturalize Christianity is simply to ruin it let's not bring Christianity down to the level of the man of the street or try and impress the most clever of men with our wisdom, with our reason pointless to naturalize Christianity is simply to ruin the wisdom of God is far above it and may we rest upon the revealed wisdom of God the message of Christ crucified and may we rejoice in the preaching of it and rest on the power of God and the spirit of God to bring about that which will stand and not that which will fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee tonight for the, the revealed wisdom of God. We acknowledge before thee how undeserving we are of any understanding of these matters, and yet, by thy grace, thou hast enabled us to know the things which thou hast prepared for them that love him. And we thank thee for this. May it give us confidence in thee. May it give us great strength and service. May it fill us with hope for the future. May it remove any anxiety we might have about the times that we live in. May we understand that everything is in thy hand and that thou hast prepared a glorious future for thy people. And may we rejoice and rest in this and give ourselves to these matters, the wisdom of God revealed in thy word. And may we grow more and more in doing so in conformity to thy Son. So we thank thee for time spent around thy word. We pray that we'll bless it to each one here gathered. Bless the assembly here. Preserve and bless testimony for thee. And give help in a day to come and in days to come. And all assemblies represented as well. We pray for a like blessing. We thank thee for the kindness of the believers here in providing refreshment for us. We pray that we'll bless that which has been prepared for us to us and bless thy saints for their kindness as we thank thee again for the Saviour and present our prayers and thanksgivings in his name. Amen. who can cheer the hearts like Jesus by his presence all the time, true and tender, pure and precious, we are blessed.
to call him. I would say, call him 100 out of the 55.